0: Welcome to Jabberwocky Audio Theater. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you. Visit our website at jabberaudio.com/support to learn more or go to patreoncom jabberwocky.
1: The following audio theater is rated ADG for general audiences. Jabberwocky Audio Theatre presents Through the Looking Glass. Today's presentation, Prince Prigio, by Andrew Lang, Part 3 of 6.
0: Welcome back, dear listeners. So, as the announcer just kindly mentioned, this is Part 3 of Prince Prigio. If your memory is beginning to get hazy, here is a quick summary, um... We can do the music cues, right? Oh, thank you. I think those help. So, in Chapter 1, we learn all about the Kingdom of Pantuflia, where much of the story takes place, and the land which Prince Prigio is a prince of. In Chapter 2, we learn that, through no fault of his own, Prince Prigio is cursed to be entirely too clever, so that he annoys and irritates all of those around him, including his family, which includes the king. In fact, the king became so annoyed with his son, Prince Prigio, that he decides Prigio must face the fearsome Fire Drake, which we have learned is kind of a lizard and kind of a dragon and definitely all heat and death, and... Really the kind of creature that you send knights to go out and slay? Oh, and by now we're in chapter three. Yes, thank you. (laughs) So the king knows that if he has three sons, which he does, that the first two will fail. But the third shall slay the fire drake, so he orders Prigio to go forth. But Prigio who, as we've established, is quite clever indeed, also knows the first two sons are doomed to failure. So he suggests that the third son go first and make the whole operation more efficient.
2: Ho oh there? Page! My chain armor, helmet, lance, and buckler! Ah, uh, Molinda! Ah, uh,
1: Molinda
0: But Prince Alfonso, for that was his name, never returns, certainly having perished. So the king sends his second son, Prince Enrico, but he also never returns, also having perished. (laughs) At this point, the king is quite upset
2: and wants to send Pergio off to slay the fire drake, but... You must permit me to correct your policy... Your only reason for dispatching your sons in pursuit of this dangerous, but I believe fabulous and therefore imaginary, animal was to ascertain which of us would most worthily succeed to your throne at such a date, long may it be deferred, of your lamented decease. Now there can be no further question about the matter. I... Unworthy as I am, represent the sole hope of continuance of the royal family. Therefore, to send me after the fire drake were both dangerous and... mm, Unnecessary. Prince Prigio employed the subjunctive mood were, dear listeners, for he was a great grammarian. Dangerous, because if he treats me as you say he did my brothers, my unhappy brothers the throne of Pantuflia will want an heir. But if I do come back alive, why, I cannot be more the true heir than I am at present now, can I? <laughs> Ask the Lord Chief Justice if you don't believe me. These
0: arguments were clearly and undeniably correct that the king, unable to answer them, withdrew into a solitary place where he could express himself with freedom and give rein to his passions. Well, at this point, we're in Chapter 4. Delightful. But uh, the king and his court are not delighted at all, so they abandon Prince Prigio, who finds himself alone in the palace, without money, food, or clothes. So by chapter five, Prince Prigio was exploring the palace and found a garret, which is a small attic type room that features in a disproportionate number of fairy tales and where heroes often find important items on their quest. And so this tale's hero, the prince, finds all the fantastical gifts he got from the fairies when he was a baby. A purse of inexhaustible gold, a cap of darkness which makes him invisible, seven league boots to travel great distances, and so on. Well, no sooner than chapter 6 Prince Prigio inadvertently finds himself in a tavern in a town he wished to dine thanks to his newly acquired magical items. Oh, but dear listeners, he doesn't realize it, any of it. By this time, you or I or anyone who is not so extremely clever as Prince Prigio would have understood what was the matter. He had put on, without knowing it, not only the seven-league boots, but the cap of darkness, and had taken Fortunatus's purse, which could never be empty, however often you took all the money out. All those and many other delightful wares the fairies had given him at his christening, and the prince had found them in the dark garret. But the prince was so extremely wise, and learned, and scientific, that he did not believe in fairies, nor in fairy gifts.
2: It is indigestion, he said to himself, though sausages were not of the best, and that burgundy was extremely strong. Things are not as they appear. Here, as he was arguing with himself, he was nearly run
0: over by a splendid carriage and six, the driver of which never took the slightest notice of him. Annoyed by this, the prince leaped up behind, threw down the two footmen, who made no resistance, and so was carried to the door of a magnificent palace. He was determined to challenge the gentleman who was in the carriage, but, noticing that he had a very beautiful young lady with him, whom he had never seen before, he followed them into the house, not wishing to alarm the girl, and meaning to speak to the gentleman when he found him alone. A great ball was going on, but, as usual, nobody took any notice of the prince. He walked among the guests, being careful not to jostle them, and listened to their conversation. It was all about himself. Everyone had heard of his disgrace, and almost everyone cried, Sir, yes. Sir right. Right. They said that the airs he gave himself were quite unendurable, and that nothing was more rude than to be always in the right, that cleverness might be carried far too far, that it was better even to be born stupid. Like the rest of you, thought the prince rather meanly, and in fact nobody had a good word for him. Yes, one had. It was the pretty lady of the carriage, I never could tell you how pretty she was. She was tall, with cheeks like white roses blushing. She had dark hair and very large dark gray eyes, and her face was the kindest in the world. The prince first thought how nice and good she looked, even before he thought how pretty she looked. She stood up for Prince Prigio when her partner would speak ill of him. She had never seen the prince, for she was newly come to Pantuflia, but she declared that it was his misfortune, not his fault, to be so clever.
2: And then think how hard they made him work at school.
0: Besides, said this kind young lady, I hear he is extremely handsome and very brave, and he has a good heart, for he was kind,
2: I have heard, to a poor boy, and did all his examination papers for him, so that the boy passed first in everything, and now he is minister
0: for education, though he can't do a line of Greek prose. (laughs) The prince blushed at this, for he knew his conduct had not been honorable. But he at once fell over head and ears in love with the young lady, a thing he had never done in his life before, because he had previously said, women were so stupid. You see, he was so clever... And paradoxically, when one is so full of thoughts, one can also be quite thoughtless. Now, at this very moment, when the prince all of a sudden was as deep in love as he had been the stupidest officer in the room, an extraordinary thing happened. Something seemed to give a whirr in his brain, and in one instant he knew all about it. He believed in fairies and fairy gifts and understood that his cap was the cap of darkness, and his shoes the seven-league boots, and his purse the purse of fortunatus. He had read about those things in historical books, but now he believed in them. Chapter 7. The Prince Falls in Love he understood all this and burst out laughing, which nearly <laughs> frightened an old lady near him out oh, of her bye. wits, for he still had on the cap of darkness. Ah, uh, how he wished he was only an evening dress that he might dance with the charming young lady. But there he was, dressed just as if he were going out to hunt, if anyone could have seen him. So, even if he took off his cap of darkness and became visible, he was no figure for a ball. Once he would not have cared, but now he cared very much indeed. But the prince was not clever for nothing. He thought for a moment, then went out of the room, and in three steps of the seven-league boots was at his empty, dark, cold palace again. He struck a light with a flint and steel, lit a torch, and ran upstairs to the garret. The flaring light of the torch fell on.
1: That pile of rubbish.
0: As the queen would have called it, which he turned over with eager hands, Was there a haw? Yes, there was another cap. There it lay, a handsome green one with a red feather. The prince pulled off the cap of darkness, put on the
2: other, and said, I wish I were dressed in my best suit of white and gold with the royal pantuflia diamonds. In one moment,
0: there he was, in white and gold, the greatest and most magnificent dandy in the whole world and the handsomest man. How about my boots, I wonder, said the prince, for his seven-league boots were stout riding boots, not good to dance in, whereas now he was in elegant shoes of silk and gold. He threw down the wishing cap, put on the other, the cap of darkness, and made three strides in the direction of Gluckstein. But he was only three steps nearer it than he had been, and the seven-league boots were standing beside him on the floor. No, said the prince,
2: no man can be in two different pairs of boots at one and the same time. That's mathematics. He then hunted about in the lumber room again till he found a
0: small, shabby, old Persian carpet, the size of a hearth rug. He went to his own room, took a portmanteau in his hand, sat down on the carpet and said, I wish... I were in Gluckstein. In a moment there he found himself, for this was that famous carpet which Prince Hussein bought long ago in the market at Bisnagar, and which the fairies had brought with the other presents to the christening of Prince Prigio. When he arrived at the house where the ball was going on, he put the magical carpet in the portmanteau and left it in the cloakroom, receiving a numbered ticket in exchange. Then he marched in all his glory, and of course without the cap of darkness, into the room where they were dancing. Everybody made place for him, bowing down to the ground, and the loyal band struck up the prince's march. Fond of this march and the words. Some people even said he had made them himself. But now, somehow, he didn't much like it. He went straight to the Duke of Stumpfelbahn, the hereditary master of the ceremonies, and asked to be introduced to the beautiful young lady. She was the daughter of the new English ambassador, and her name was Lady Rosalind. But she nearly fainted when she heard who it was that wished to dance with her. For although she would never admit it, she was quite as smart as she was fair, yet she would insist that she was not at all particularly clever, which is often something different entirely. Moreover, the prince had such a bad character for snubbing girls and asking them difficult questions. However, it was impossible to refuse, and so she danced with the prince, and he danced very well. Then they sat out in the conservatory among the flowers, where nobody came near them, And then they danced again, and then the prince took her down to supper, and all the time
2: he never once said, Have you read this? Or, Have you read that? Or, What? You never heard of Alexander the Great? Or Julius Caesar, or Michael Angelo,
0: or whoever it might be, horrid, difficult questions he used to ask. That was the way he used to go on. But now he only talked to the young lady about herself, and she quite left off being shy or frightened and asked him all about his own country, and about the fire drake, shooting, and said how fond she was of hunting
2: herself, and the prince said, Oh, if you wish it, you shall have the horns and tail of a fire drake to hang up in your hall tomorrow evening. Then she asked if it was not very dangerous work, fire drake hunting, and he said
0: it was nothing when you knew the trick of it, and he asked her if she would but give him a rose out of her bouquet, and in short, he made himself so agreeable and unaffected that she thought him very nice indeed, for even a clever person can be nice when he likes, above all when he is not thinking about himself." And now the prince was thinking of nothing in the world but the daughter of the English ambassador and how to please her. He got introduced to her father, too, and quite won his heart. And, at last, he was invited to dine the next day at the embassy. In Pantuflia, it is the custom that a ball must not end while one of the royal family goes on dancing. This ball lasted till the light came in, and the birds were singing out of doors, and all the mother's presents were sound asleep. Then nothing would satisfy the prince but that they all should go home singing through the streets. In fact, there never had been so merry a dance in all pantuflia. The prince had made a point of dancing with almost every girl there, and he had suddenly become the most beloved of the royal family. But everything must end at last, and the prince, putting on the cap of darkness and sitting on the famous carpet, flew back to his lonely castle. Chapter 8. The Prince is Puzzled. Prince Prigio did not go to bed. It was bright daylight, and he had promised to bring the horns and tail of a fire drake as a present to a pretty lady. He had said it was easy to do this, but now, as he sat and thought over it, he did not feel so victorious. First, where is the fire drake? He reflected for a little and then ran upstairs to the garret. Oh, it should be here, he cried, tossing the fairy's gifts about. And by George, here it is. Indeed, he had found the spyglass of carved ivory, which Prince Ali in the Arabian Nights bought in the Bazaar of Shiraz. Now this glass was made so that by looking through it, you could see anybody or anything you wished, however far away. Prigio's first idea was to look at his lady. But she does not expect to be looked at, he thought, and I won't. On the other hand, he determined to look at the fire drake for, of course, he had no delicacy about spying on him, the brute. The prince clapped the glass to his eyes, stared out of the window, and there, sure enough, he saw the fire drake. (laughs) He was floating about in a sea of molten lava on top of a volcano. There he was, swimming and diving for pleasure tossing up the flaming waves and blowing fountains of fire out of his nostrils like a whale
2: spouting. The prince did not like the looks of him. With my cap of darkness and my shoes of swiftness and my sword of sharpness, still I should never get near that beast, he said. And if I did stalk him, well, I could not hurt him. Poor little Alfonso. Oh, poor Enrico. What plucky fellows they were. I fancied there was no such thing as a fire drake. He's not in the natural history books. And I thought the boys were only making fun and would be back soon, safe and sound. How horrid being too clever makes one. And now what am I to do? What was he to do indeed? And what
0: would you have done? Bring the horns and tail he must, or perish in the adventure? Otherwise, how could he meet his lady? Why she would think him a mere braggart. The prince sat down and thought and thought, and the day went on, and it was now high noon. At last, he jumped up and rushed into the library, a room where nobody ever went except himself and the queen. There he turned the books upside down in his haste till he found an old one by a French gentleman, Monsieur Cyrano de Bergerac. It was an account of a voyage to the moon, in which there is a great deal of information about matters not generally known, for few travelers have been to the moon. I believe that's still generally accurate. In that book, Prince Prigio fancied he would find something he half-remembered, and that would be of use to him. And he did. So, you see that cleverness and, minding your book, have some advantages, after all. For here the prince learned that there is a very rare beast called a remora, which is
2: at least as cold as the fire drake is hot. Now, thought he, if I can only make these two fight, why, the remora may kill the fire drake, or take the heat out of him at least so that I may have a chance. Then he seized the
0: ivory glass, clapped it to his eye, and looked for the remora. Just the tip of his nose as white as snow and as smooth as ice was sticking out of a chink in a frozen mountain not far from the burning mountain of the fire drake. Hooray, said the prince softly to himself, and he jumped like mad into the winged shoes of swiftness, stuck on the cap of darkness, girdled himself with the sword of sharpness, and grabbed a proper sandwich and some snacks, which he put in a traveling bag and he slung on his back. Never you fight, dear listeners, if you can help it, except with plenty of food to keep you going and in good heart. Then off he flew, and soon he reached the volcano of the fire drake. Chapter 9. The Prince and the Fire Drake It was dreadfully hot, even high up in the air, where the prince hung invisible. Great burning stones were tossed up by the volcano and nearly hit him several times. Moreover, the steam and smoke and the flames which the fire trick spouted like foam from his nostrils would have daunted even the bravest man. The sides of the hill, too, were covered with the blackened ashes of his victims, whom he had roasted when they came out to kill him. The garden engine of poor little Alfonso was lying in the valley, all broken and useless. But the fire drake, as happy as a wild duck on a lonely lock, was rolling and diving in the liquid flame, all red-hot and full of frolic. "'Hi!' shouted the prince. The fire drake rose to the surface, his horns as red as a red crescent moon, only bigger, and lashing the fire with his hooves and his blazing tail.
1: "'Who's there?
0: he said in a hoarse, angry voice.
2: Just let me get at you. It's me,
0: answered the prince. It was the first time he had forgotten his grammar, but he was terribly excited.
2: What do you want?
0: grunted the beast. Uh, I wish I could see you and horrible to relate, he rose on a pair of wide flaming wings and came right at the prince, guided by the sound of his voice. Now the prince had never heard that fire drakes could fly, indeed he had never believed in them at all till the night before. For a moment he was numb with terror, then he flew down like a stone to the very bottom of the hill and shouted, Hi! Wow! Grunted the fire drake.
2: "'What's the matter? Why can't you give a civil answer to a civil question?' "'Will you go back to your hole and swear on your honor as a fire drake to listen quietly?' "'On my sacred word of honor!' said the beast, casually
0: scorching an eagle that flew by into ashes. The cinders fell, jingling and crackling around the prince in a little shower." Then the fire drake dived back with an awful splash of flame, and the mountain roared round him. The prince
2: now flew high above him and cried, A message from the remora. He says you are afraid to fight him. Don't know him, grunted the fire drake. He sends you his glove,
0: said Prince Prigio, as a challenge to mortal combat. Till death do you part. Then he dropped his own glove into the fiery lake. Does he? yelled the fire drake. (laughs) Just let me get at him! And he scrambled out all red hot as he was. I'll go and tell him you're coming, said the prince. And with two strides, he was over the frozen mountain of the Remora. Chapter 10, The Prince and the Remora If he had been too warm before, the prince was too cold now. The hill of the Remora was one solid mass of frozen steel, and the cold rushed out of it like the breath of some icy beast, which indeed it was. All around were things like marble statues of men in armor. They were the dead bodies of the knights, horses and all, who had gone out of old to fight the Remora, and who had been frosted up by him. The prince felt his blood stand still, and he grew faint, but he took heart, for there was no time to waste, yet he could nowhere see the Remora. Hi! shouted the prince. Then. From a narrow chink at the bottom of the smooth black hill, a chink no deeper than that under a door but a mile wide, stole out a hideous head. It was as flat as the head of a skatefish. It was deathly pale, and two chill blue eyes, dead-colored like stones, looked out of it. Then there came a whisper like the breath of the bitter east wind on a wintry day. Where are
2: you, and how can, can I come, come
0: to you? And then the remora... What, what, what now? Oh, dear listeners, how much I want to tell you what happened next, but I'm being told we're out of time. I'm sorry, but this whole not-ending-on-chapters is too much. It's ridiculous. Who adapted this story anyway?
1: I'm not mentioning any names. You did. I say your name in the credits. Oh,
0: well, uh, it's a good thing I didn't mention any names.
1: Music? You've been listening to Jabberwocky Audio Theater. Today's presentation, Prince Prigio part three of six. The story was written by Andrew Lang and lightly adapted for radio by Bjorn Munson. This program has been produced by Jabberwocky Audio Theatre in association with WERALP, Radio Arlington 96.7 FM, Arlington, Virginia. Featured in the cast were Bjorn Munson as the narrator, Kevin Murray as King Grognio, Mike Bernal as Prince Alfonso, Nick DePinto as Prince Prigia, Tara Garwood as Lady Rosalind, Amy t as the Old Lady and the Remora, Mary Lecter as the Queen, Elizabeth Farrington and Brooks Tegler as the musicians, and Joel Snyder as the Fire Drake, with additional voices by Francis Abbey, Mike Bernal, William R. Coughlin, Kim Davenport, Elizabeth Farrington, Tara Garwood, Bjorn Munson, and Brooks Tegler. Recorded at Tolgi Wood Studios in deepest Springfield with supplemental recording in many other places. See our show notes on jabberaudio.com for details. There, you'll also find our latest episodes and enough information to satisfy a prince.
2: I can fully attest to this. I especially like the Encyclopedia of the Imperium.
1: Well, there you have it, folks. Dialogue editing by Maurice Malda with sound editing and final mixing by William R. Kaufman. Post-production services provided by Tohu Bohu Productions, LLC. If you're enjoying Prince Prigio and the other yarns we spin at Jabberwocky Audio Theatre... Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Jabberwocky for exclusive content and to help us continue to bring you further tales of silliness, suspense, and high adventure. Until next time, this is Kim Davenport saying thanks for listening. And tune in next week for part four of Prince Prigio. Hast thou slain the Jabberwock?